Hey there, theater lovers, it's me again. Today, we're going to be talking about a little more well-known play and playwright, 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane. This episode deals with some pretty heavy topics, so make sure you're in a good place to listen. If not, I'm happy to see you next time. There will be more specific content warnings at the top of the dramaturgy section. But first, our announcements. If you didn't catch it a few months back, you can see two of our actors, Lily Welsh and Grace Walker, who is premiering in this episode, in the Theater Project's online production of Dog Sees God. It is being rebroadcast from now until the 22nd at 7.30 p.m. EST each night. Tickets are $15 and can be purchased on the Theater Project's website. Playwrights Horizons has produced a really interesting piece called The Kill One Race, created by Raja Feather Kelly and Feather Theory, based off of the dystopian novel Kill One. This piece is part documentary, part theater, and part reality TV game show. It sounds so cool. It premieres on Friday, June 4th. Since it was pre-filmed, it seems that you will be able to watch it for free on thekillonerace.com starting on that date. Stay True Theater is producing a reading series called Bloom. Four readings are being done from June 10th to June 13th. Tickets are $10 for one show, but if you'd like to see all four plays that are being produced in this series, it is $38. I highly recommend. I Am a Theater Company is producing an online production of The Latrell Show by Brandon Kyle Goodman. This show is a dark comedy that explores the mental aerobics of being black and queer in America through an opinionated talk show host named Latrell Jackson. You can stream this show from May 23rd to June 20th. To view, sign up for a particular week and you can view the show whenever you would like in that particular week. Tickets start at $15, but you can pay more if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation to the company. Soundscape Theater's Laughscape series continues. Celestial Beings by Austin Helpern Grazer and Is She Gay by Suds C have both been released. You can listen for free to these funny 10-minute audio plays on the company's Instagram, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And finally, our guest today actually has two shows coming up if you're interested in seeing more of her work after you hear her speak. You can see Monica Cross's 10-minute play, The Beginning of Everything, at the Actors Conservatory online tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. EST. Tickets are $15 each and can be purchased on pac.edu. Her second show is called On Robots and Raindrops at Theater Odyssey. It will be presented as a radio drama. You can see this show from May 21st through the 23rd. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased on theaterodyssey.org. All right, folks. And now it's time to dive into 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane. 
I need to give some serious content warnings for this episode, you guys. Content warnings for depression, suicidal thoughts, suicide in general, self-harm, extremely negative self-talk, and medical trauma. If you're not in a good place today to listen to that, please take care of yourself and come back another day when you feel a bit more steady. All good? All right. Let's start with our playwright's bio. Sarah Kane was an English playwright, screenwriter, and theater director. She is known for her plays that deal with themes of redemptive love, sexual desire, pain, torture, both physical and psychological, and death. They are characterized by a poetic intensity, pared-down language, exploration of theatrical form, and, in her earlier work, the use of extreme and violent stage action. She studied drama at Bristol University for her undergrad, and got an MA in playwriting from the University of Birmingham. For a year, she was a writer-in-residence for Payne's Plow, a theater company promoting new writing, where she actively encouraged other writers. Before that, she had worked briefly as a literary associate for the Bush Theater in London. Sadly, Kane committed suicide at the age of just 28. Here is a short summary of 448 Psychosis from the Literature Arts and Medicine Database. 448 Psychosis was the last work of controversial British playwright Sarah Kane. In 1999, soon after her 28th birthday, having completed the play, she took her own life. Naturally, these tragic circumstances can never be far from the reader's mind. But to dismiss 448 Psychosis as a suicide note is to negate Kane's achievement. The play was, in fact, meticulously researched and carefully written. 448 Psychosis is both the final product of a life marked by recurrent episodes of depression, the play gets its name from the time she found herself waking up every day during her last depressive episode, and the final chapter in her writing's progression towards disintegration. It represents her deteriorating mental state, but is also a conscious, stylistic decision. Let's be frank here. I believe it's impossible to completely understand this play unless you've been in Sarah Kane's shoes. But if you haven't, which thank God if you haven't, you can still respect and do your best to understand through the study of mental health in femme people, how society has historically viewed depression in general as well as in femme people, and how femme bodies are viewed in medical situations. Mental health hasn't been in the mainstream cultural zeitgeist for all that long. Hell, I think even those of us in our early to mid-twenties can remember when it still wasn't okay to talk about. Historically, people who have mental illnesses were viewed as possessed or being religiously punished by God or other heinous theories. According to Unite for Sight, even as late as the mid to late 19th century, mentally ill people were treated as distinctly other. There wasn't a large push for deinstitutionalization in America until the 1950s, less than 100 years ago. It wasn't until 1963, with the Community Health Centers Act, that psychiatric facilities were restricted to only keeping patients who, quote, posed an imminent danger to themselves or someone else. 
before this, you could still legally commit someone for, well, anything, really. Though this practice did slow down significantly by 1900. But until 1963, you could still legally do it. I'm sure you've seen those lists circling the internet of what sorts of things people used to be committed for, like excessive novel reading and silly stuff like that, and people being like, tag yourself, haha. Well, basically, anything the extremely patriarchal society didn't like to see in women could be used as a reason to commit your wife or your daughter or your mother. Hysteria wasn't dismissed as a medical diagnosis, and people assigned female at birth until after Freud's BS. Yeah. And until this point as well, you could commit people for being gay. Yeah, it was considered a mental disorder until very, very relatively recently. It's honestly, it's disgusting. But hey, we've come far in the last 50 to 100 years in our societal awareness of mental health and how we treat people who have various mental illnesses, right? Well there is still a certain stigma attached to the really, quote-unquote, ugly parts of being mentally ill. There are certain aspects that have been romanticized through social media in the early 2010s, and those things have come to be known as common in certain illnesses, such as anxiety and depression, and therefore not necessarily okay, but people aren't put down for these behaviors, or at least they aren't put down publicly anymore. They are looked upon usually with sympathy, empathy, and are encouraged to get help. Self-harm or having a panic attack? These things are usually looked upon with compassion, again, at least publicly. Privately, sometimes people are still, you know, big old jerks. But what about how depression, anxiety, OCD, and more can impair your executive function, making your living area extremely messy or dirty? or inhibiting your personal hygiene. What about when someone with a mental illness is being unusually irritable or snippy? What about all those things that people call being lazy or not caring when it's really just the fact that your illness is untreated, not being treated correctly, or maybe you're just having a really bad mental health day? What about how people view nonverbal individuals, whether that's because of autism or other things? What about how people view stimming, which is something that autistic people and people with ADHD tend to do to calm themselves down or to focus better? We really don't look at these things, which are normal things, in the same way that we do certain other aspects that, again, have been romanticized, such as self-harm or panic attacks. We still have a long way to go towards a society that accepts any person with any mental illness totally compassionately. Things are getting better, and we have come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. This work by Sarah Kane is only called controversial because she refuses to shy away from the truths of being severely depressed and having suicidal ideation. All of the truths. And what about how society views disability? Mental illnesses such as severe depression aren't usually considered a disability, even though they are. If it impairs your ability to take care of yourself, then it's a disability. Obviously, it's the person's decision on how they want to identify. But the fact is, mental illnesses can be disabling, just like physical conditions. 
As someone who has both, I can personally attest to this. And those of us with physical disabilities aren't the only ones who face medical trauma. If you have any kind of disability, medical trauma is probably something you are intimately familiar with. Now, by medical trauma, I don't necessarily mean your doctor was crappy. Sometimes that is the case, for sure. But you can be medically traumatized through painful procedures, rounds of treatments that don't work or make you worse, frightening situations due to injury or illness, as well as not being listened to or cared for in the same way that abled people would be. And not to mention, if you are a person of color or if you are overweight or bigger or however you choose to identify in that way, these things are going to be amplified ten fold. For mental illnesses, these traumas can sometimes come at the hands of bad therapists or unethical therapists. Sarah Kane explores this in the play, talking about her reluctance to be medicated, as well as how her doctors seemed to view her and talk to her. Trauma in people who identify as women, trans, or non-binary is a little different than people who identify as men. According to the American Psychological Association, women are twice as likely to develop PTSD, experience a longer duration of post-traumatic symptoms, and display more sensitivity to stimuli that remind them of the trauma. Women are also more likely to be hesitant to receive help for their trauma. Non-cisgender people also are more likely to have medical traumas due to bigoted doctors and or lawmakers, much more so than cisgendered women and especially more than cisgendered men. Trauma is no joke. Medical trauma, especially among those who may already be traumatized to the point of unhealthy and harmful habits and attitudes towards themselves, is dangerous. All right, folks, it's time for our reading portion. I have something special planned for you guys for this episode's reading section. You see, as we just talked about, this play isn't really in a traditional form, and therefore I didn't feel like a straight reading of a section of this text would really work. So instead, I have worked with three amazing actors to make more of an audio collage, radio play-esque type section that I thought just fit the tone and form of the piece better. And those actors are new actor to the podcast, Grace Walker, and returning actors, Chanel Blanchett and Edie Pierce. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, a performance of a section of 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane, performed by Chanel Blanchett, Edie Pierce, and Grace Walker. Body and soul can never be married. Body and soul can never be married. Body and soul can never be married. I need to become who I already am. I need to become who I already am and will bellow forever at this incongruity which has committed me to hell. I need to become who I already am and will bellow forever. 
forever at this incongruity which has committed me to hell. And will bellow forever at this incongruity which has committed me to hell. Insoluble hoping cannot uphold me. I will, I will drown, drown in dysphoria. In, dysphoria in the cold black pond of myself, the pit of my immaterial mind. How can I return to form? The pit of my immaterial mind. In the cold black pond myself, the pit of my immaterial mind. How can I return to now form my now formal my formal thought, thought has, gone. has gone? Not a life that I could countenance. They will love me for that which destroys, that which me. destroys me. Not a life that I could countenance. The sword of my dreams. The dust of my thoughts, the sickness that breeds in the folds of my mind. You love me for that which destroys me. The sword in my dreams, the dust of my thoughts, the sickness that breeds in the folds of my mind. Every compliment takes a piece of my soul, an expressionist nag stalling between two fools. <laughs> they know nothing. Every compliment takes a piece of my soul. An expressionist nag stalling between two fools. They know nothing. I have always walked free. I have always walked free. I have always walked free. Last in a long line of literary kleptomaniacs. A time-honored tradition. Theft is the holy act on a twisted path to expression. Theft is the holy act on a twisted path to expression. A glut of exclamation marks spells impending nervous breakdown. Just Theft a word on a page, the and there is the drama. A twisted path to expression. A glut of exclamation marks spells impending nervous breakdown. Just a word on a page, and there Just is the drama. Just a word on a page, and there is the drama. I write for the dead. I write for the dead. The unborn. The unborn. After 4.48, I shall not speak again. After 4.48, I shall not speak again. After 4.48, I shall not speak again. I have reached the end of his dreary and repugnant tale of a sense interned in an alien carcass and lumpened by the malignant spirit of the moral majority. I have reached the end of his dreary and repugnant tale of a sense of an alien carcass and lumpened by the malignant spirit of the moral majority. And lumpened by the malignant spirit of the moral majority. I have been dead for a long time. Back to my roots. I have been dead for a long time. Back to my roots. Back to my roots. I sing without hope on the boundary. I sing without hope on the boundary. Thank you so much to Chanel, Grace, and Edie for contributing to the podcast. If you are interested in contacting them with professional inquiries, you can find their contact information in the show notes of this episode. And now I'd love to welcome Monica Cross to the podcast today. Monica is a director, a playwright, and theater maker in the Gainesville, Florida area. She was recently named an O'Neill semifinalist for her play, The Aria of Julie D'Aubigny. The cross-dressing, sword-fighting, opera singer who seduced men and women alike, wins numerous duels, must be twice pardoned by the king, and eventually finds true love. She will probably be back on the podcast to talk about that play because I'm a sucker for Julie D'Aubigny, and I know a few of you listening are as well. Monica directed a production of 448 Psychosis in 2014. So, without further ado, here she is. 
Welcome, Monica. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited to uh, talk to you about this play because I think there's quite a bit to talk about. There is, and I'm excited to be here because this is one of my favorite plays. Yeah, me too, actually. It was, I didn't get introduced to it until I was in graduate school and I did a scenic design for it in scenic design class. And I was just like, this, I love this. <laughs> it's a great piece. And um, before we begin, before we start our interview, I think we would like to give y'all some content warnings again. I did give them at the beginning of dramaturgy, but we just want to give them again just so everyone is aware of uh, the subject matter that we will be discussing today. Um, there is a content warning for depression, self-harm, suicide and suicidal thoughts, uh, and medical trauma. Is there anything else? Uh, did I miss anything? I think that's pretty good. If, if we stray from that, then I'll uh, mention it. But um, even before content warnings were um, mainstream, when I would recommend this play to people, which I do on occasion, um, mm -hmm. I would always recommend it in, in sort of this way of like, please read this play in a park. Go someplace sunny. There should be children playing and birds chirping mm -hmm. and maybe even like a butterfly, like Close by. landing on flowers because... As you are reading this play, you will need to look up and remember that there is a world beyond the play that you're reading and that it does have happy things in it. Um, mm -hmm. And that was my introduction for this play for a number of people for mm -hmm. a very long time um, because I feel that this play is so, so immediate yeah. in the immersion and in, in the, the feelings of this play that it needs that level of introduction. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, and, and it, it has never been a play that I was just handed to someone and said like, Hey, go read this because yeah. that is not, not how you uh, discuss yeah. any of Sarah Kane's work, but in particular yeah. 448 psychosis. Yeah, uh, deals with a lot of heavy themes. Don't want to catch anybody off guard because uh, that can be dangerous. So yeah, I also recommend maybe reread in a sunny place. It's getting on summer. Go outside and read this play maybe. <laughs> I think it's a good suggestion. Um, I mean, just speaking about why you love this play, um, was there anything else that made you want to direct it? I So the way that I read this play was a little blind, uh, like coming into it blindsided. Um, mm. And the, I had read uh, Blasted in college and mm. I had gotten a complete works of Sarah Kane. And then I took it with me on a trip Ooh. as the only reading that I brought with me, not quite recognizing what I was in for uh, with it. And so I remember sitting in a cafe reading this play and putting down the script and sort of checking the room to make sure that it people didn't know what I was reading oh right because it was so intense that I, I was yeah. convinced that like everyone must surely know these thoughts that are, are going through my head 
because my the effect of, of me reading this for the first time was uh, realizing that Sarah Kane is discussing in this play thoughts that I think socially we're not often allowed to admit that we've had. Um, mm. And so there is so much of this play that is about the communal experience of, of seeing another person who is experiencing the thoughts that you can't share with other people. Yeah. And so for me, that was what directing it was about. I wanted to direct this play because I wanted to share it with other people who might have experiences that they felt like they couldn't talk about or they couldn't share. And in fact, I had people in the audience come up to me afterwards and express that sentiment exactly. Wow. Like I, I feel very seen by this play. Um, yeah, so that was a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was also a very, very difficult experience. Well, yeah, because of the thoughts that are being expressed. It, I can imagine being like, I'm sorry that you identified with this, but I'm glad it helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this play, that's kind of what I, when I first read it, I did go into it knowing what it was about um, because it was only a few years ago and content warnings were definitely a thing by then. And, but I remember having a similar experience to that and being like, oh my goodness, I both kind of wish teenage me had read this and I'm read this and and I'm really glad she didn't, <laughs> you know? And one thing that I really loved is the form where there's no stage directions. It's very amorphous and almost like a poem or a prose poem at least. And I imagine that is difficult and also exciting to direct and uh, be a part of? And was there a specific way that you and the creative team approached the text? Yes. Um, and I came at it because I read all of her plays in chronological yeah. order. Oh. I got to see a very different view, I think, of 448 Psychosis than other people who come at it. So her first play involves a man and a woman who go to a hotel room together and definitely content warnings for cannibalism and sexual assault oh, and uh, like lots of, of violence and sexual violence in that play. Um, but in the middle of the play, like the, the world breaks, the walls open up and there's like a fissure into like what was uh, a, a hotel room drama has now become a like war drama. And, and oh. you find out that they're in the, like it's not until the middle of the play that you find out that they're in the middle of a war zone. And so that is her most standard play. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> by the time... By the time you get to uh, cleansed, there's um, like a flower that grows above the wall of a bed, and then this giant sunflower, like it grows out of this vine 
above this character. Um, I love that. That one also has a lot of violence and sexual violence in it. Um, There was a production at the National a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. where audience members reportedly passed out due to the levels of violence in the play. So that's cleansed and it's a couple of stories interspersed. Gotcha. Craved is four characters that are listed by number or letters rather than names. There are stage directions, but it's incredibly, you know, sort of Brechtian with people standing and talking through these kind of monologues that are happening in between each other rather than a a narrative structure. Mm -hmm. And so then you come to this play, which has no named characters. It has no stage directions. Mm -mm. It has page breaks. And it has dashes to indicate changes in voices in in some sections. Um, And other than that, it is text. And it is text that is sometimes a wall of text. And it is text that is sometimes a mixture of text. And then there's an entire section that is numbers Mm -hmm. interspersed around the page. And so that was an amazing challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. And I chose to produce it with five actors. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, there there are sort of traditional ways of producing this script. Usually it's a three person cast. There is Mm -hmm. the main character, the friend and the therapist. or, or the doctor. And those are the, the sort of three traditional voices that are broken out. And what I chose to do is rather than casting the doctor as a middle-aged man and the main voice as a younger woman, and mm-hmm. that, that, that is a power dynamic that exists in the yeah. script in that staging. Mm-hmm. But I was directing at... Mary Baldwin College, which is now Mary Baldwin University, which at the time was an all-women's residential college. And so I chose to conflate the friend and the doctor voices so that you get a kind of younger, hipper, and maybe a little bit less professional yes, doctor, and then split up the main voice and I may I had those like I, certain themes recur, so I would cluster those together so that it was like one person who's constantly talking about um, an absent father and a non-existent lover, and there's one person who's talking about body, and there's one person who's talking about codependency a lot, and mm-hmm. one person that's talking about like writing. Those were sort of the four clusters that I I grouped all of the talk around. Yeah. Um, And then I chose to sort of frame it in terms of like group talk. Okay. Partially because this was, I was directing this uh, with students and it was in a black box. So we, we literally like took 
the classroom chairs from upstairs and brought them down and they were the chairs mm-hmm. with the little metal folding mm-hmm. uh like, desks or whatever uh, desks on the top mm-hmm. and there's a scene where it says like i'm sad i'm this i'm that and i had one person reading those as if it was like a pre-prepared list mm-hmm. and on everyone else chose whether they would like slam their desk chair or their their um chair desk rather um in solidarity like i too feel this um and so each actor got to make that choice as to whether they were going to to slam that or not Mm -hmm. um and so that created a a dichotomy between this this group that is trying to talk through the things that they're thinking and feeling and so it did i did not impose a narrative gotcha but what i found through the interrogation of the language and the text is that scenes emerged and thought patterns emerged and so that was sort of how we organized it is this loose theme of of people talking in this this group setting and then having private moments beyond that but i also staged it because of my interest in that very communal experience yeah. i staged it in the round okay i like that and I removed chairs from the platform so that they were clusters of one or two or three chairs together. So you could sit with your party, however many people came, but you weren't sitting next to someone you didn't know, but across the space you could see someone or everyone else on the other side of the stage experiencing the same moment. And I also had the actors never leave the space. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. So um, that was sort of how we explored the language. Mm-hmm. And it very much so, like, the, I would say the one thing that I, I feel like I would have liked to gone back and, and looked at further is the blank space mm. in the play. Um, yeah. I feel like particularly towards the end, um, yeah. you know, you get to the end of a, a rehearsal run and the end of a production and you want to, like, get to that end. Um, but the, the last couple of pages have so little text on them. Yeah. And the play invites you to slow down. And we did, but I would have liked that to slow down even further. Yeah. That is something that I really took in, uh, while I was reading this, uh, again for this episode, um, was how it ends like there's all of this space there's like one sentence on a page and in the end it just has like two little fragments of text and then that's it and yeah how did you guys do the very end because that is what I was how do you end how do you end this (laughs) so a lot of people take this play as very autobiographical yes or as this sort of unedited confession 
eat, which hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I wanted to resist that reading as much as possible. And and I encourage anyone who is reading this to resist that as much as possible. Agreed. Yeah. People even go so far as to call the main voice Sarah. Um, which is why in my description, I specifically refrained from that. Yeah. One of the things when I was doing research, I, I listened to a bunch of interviews and recordings and any information. I, I read a bunch of stuff about the play and about Sarah Kane. And I forget if it was her editor or her literary manager, um, but there was a person that she was working with. Yeah. And in one of the things that I, I listened to, I distinctly remember someone saying that Sarah Kane wrote this play, sent it to said person. Said person wrote back and said, it's great. It's a little dark. Could you add more jokes? And she did. This is not a first draft. This is a finished product. Yeah. And so, with that in mind, I feel like when you read this play as autobiographical, you read this play as having a foregone conclusion. And I, because I wanted this play to be about finding that hope of, of other people having a shared experience, yeah. I wanted to resist that ending quite hard and so I have the four characters that other than the doctor mm -hmm. uh repeating watch me watch me mm -hmm. and then the doctor voice said vanish um so that the ending isn't about the the hopelessness mm -hmm. of of the inevitable but instead a call to arms of, of like look in on your friends yeah and so the play actually ended with the four of them in a circle holding hands saying watch me watch me and then lifting them saying the final lines and taking their bow i love that yeah it was uh, you know, very powerful moment, um, and it is a moment that I think is is definitely pushing on the text, right? Like, it's not right. a simple reading of those lines, but it does push towards a, towards hope, towards a, a journey. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted this play to be not about an inevitable decline into a foregone conclusion, but instead be about watching people process and work through and struggle and really try. Yeah. And so that was how I, I pushed that ending. Um, and I think that it, that ending worked a lot better for our students, uh, for the the audience as well. I also reading it this time around for the millionth time for the episode, I 
I wrote in my notes that I felt like the ending could be taken in a hopeful direction because yeah, watch me vanish. Yeah. It could mean that inevitable thing, but it could also be like, watch what, like these thoughts they're here now. I've said them, watch them vanish. Now we've, we've Mm -hmm. talked them through and I'm getting better now. There is a repetition there, right? And it's a repetition that builds. So yes, it, it is. Watch me, watch me. And then watch me vanish, right? Like there is, I think, an evolution of text that encourages that play um, and leaves the interpretation open Mm -hmm. to possibilities. Um, But I do think that this is a very funny play. Um, Yeah. It is very much a gallows humor, but she says, you know, she calls it gallows humor within the play one of the voices has an entire line about talking to the doctors and and having that wry laugh uh you know of that gallows humor in that um conversation Mm um and you know i think that there are lots of a very touching moments that make you know like they they, there's a lot of talk about like well comedy makes the tragedy all that more poignant and I think that that really this is a case study in that like (laughs) she has so many moments uh like the the dialogue about metaphor and simile Mm -hmm, is so funny um in this moment that is so heartbreaking uh and the the list of medications, right? Oh, and yeah. the way that that scene ends with this sort of dry humor tacking stuff on to the end of this me- list of medications, I think it really has a lot of beauty in in its bittersweet moments. Um, and I think that that helps this play along and helps this play towards that resisting that foregone conclusion. Yeah. And I mean, Hey, if it was all one of the sections where it's like, everything is horrible people. I I don't know if it would be as prolific as it is. It just, it's, it's important. The whoever told her to add more jokes. um, (laughs) At first I was like, why would you say that? Then I was like, yeah, no, he was probably, they were probably right. They're probably right. The gallows humor helps it along because the themes of this play are just, they're very, they're very heavy. Like be frank about it. They're very heavy. Um, And they can be really hard to approach, not just with your audience as you're performing, but also with the creative team as you're making the show. And I know I was wondering how you guys approached that. How did you do it in a way that, kept people safe. Right. So this was six years ago. I definitely have a lot more uh, tools in my toolkit now, um, but I learned a lot of toolkits. Yeah. uh, A lot of tools, uh, added a lot of tools to my toolkit in that um, production. Yeah. We built into production a check-in at the top of rehearsal where we would really say like where we're at 
And at the end of rehearsal, we would have uh, a half hour cool down period built into every rehearsal. We also had a very short rehearsal period because this was uh, a May term production. So I think we had two and a half weeks for an hour long show. We were rehearsing every night um, and, you know, the everyone sort of agreed to only work on this in rehearsal yeah. Um, you know, don't go over your script alone in your room at night. Um, nope. Nope. And so that really helped. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it was uh, sometimes cool down was like, let's put on some very poppy music and get up and dance. And sometimes it was like, let's do a breathing, breathing meditation and, you know, close all of our feelings into a box and leave them here. And that was actually an exercise that was taught to my cast by my assistant director, Shane. And um, I have since used that on several shows to help actors um, leave stuff in the space. Yeah. And so that, that was a big part of our process. We talked at the beginning about like, just as we're going to resist an autobiographical reading of this text from, you know, of of Sarah Kane's life, we're also going to resist using a Stanislavski or a, 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 an approach where we're pulling from our own lives. We are going to take this in a very movement based way. And we're going to craft a story together. But so we had discussions throughout and we had those, mechanisms built in but we also had a very emotional time with it and in performance we allowed ourselves to be very emotional and very vulnerable um i remember one of the actors had pockets in her pants and most of the actors didn't uh, because of the way that the costumes just worked out and Mm -hmm. so she kept a bunch of of um tissues in a pocket and the actor that started crying on stage first got the tissues um not because it was a like race but because like they were gonna run out and you know so whoever was the first one that you were the one that you know and so it became this sort of improvised moment in the play that was a real moment where one person would go walk over to another person who was crying and give them tissues for them to dry their eyes. And, and so then with that, we could take care of each other in the performance. Mm -hmm. And then we could come back together at the end of the show after all of the audience had left and we could have our moments to to cool down together as a group. And so I hope that that was a good experience for everyone. I I think that at the time we were all very excited by the work that we were doing. Um, And it definitely was something that that was very collaborative and, and very much so something that we were checking in on checking in with each other and yeah. and taking it at our own pace even though like b- 
because it was a two week process, I think we blocked it in like one six hour rehearsal oh, on a, like a Saturday or something. Like, I mean, it was just this like whirlwind thing of like, okay, let's, let's work through the whole script. Great. Now we have a show. Now let's just spend the next three weeks, like fine tuning it. Um, wow. And, and it worked out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like the sound of all of that. Sounds like you really took care of your actors um, and yourself. I did try. Yeah. Which is important to do when you're doing any work like this is to make sure you're taking care of your actors, but also taking care of yourself. And it sounds like you guys were super great about that. So congrats about that. Um, (laughs) Because a lot of people, I have seen the argument that this play is too traumatic to be staged healthily for both the ones putting it on and, but also the audience. Um, I've seen that opinion voiced and I was wondering how you felt about that. I definitely would recommend everyone being safe in their practice. Um, This play can be very unhealthily done. I've, I've seen a lot of stuff in the research that I've done where the productions have been about displaying a descent into psychosis um and that to me that may not have been the production team's intentions but that that was the effect of of productions that i've seen parts of or or all of on youtube or or heard described through writing and so forth secondhand accounts and so so on but um so i would say that it there are definitely productions that I have heard of that as an audience member, I would not feel good about attending. Um, and I also, I had a friend who came and saw my production and said that it was not a good time for her to have seen it. And I was like, ah, I am sorry. Yeah. But I do think that it, one of the things that we did was we had talkbacks after I believe it was the first and last performance and we had like information in the the program mm-hmm. about resources oh, that's great. on campus and so forth and so the plan with the production was to reach out to people yeah um And so I think that there are ways to mitigate the trauma of the production, but Mm -hmm. that requires a lot of care and it involves the right environment. Yeah. So yeah, no, I completely, something that was a big thing at Sarah Lawrence the year I graduated was care care in our practice, but also care of our fellow artists and also care of our audience. And I think if you keep that in mind when doing this show and you give content warnings and resources that like you can't, you can do this show in a way that is, that is healthy for the people involved. Um, I think it's possible. You just, you got to put the effort, you got to put the care in. And it's very much so a show that I directed at a particular point in my life. Yeah. That point in my life was six, coming on seven years ago. Um, And in my own artistic life now, I tend towards 
a lot more blatantly hopeful things rather than things that are like hope through darkness. Um, So I, I directed it when it was right for me to direct it. And I think that as with all plays, we ask like, why this play now? And I think that it, it was a, my opportunity to be a guest director for an all women's college. And I wanted to direct a female playwright who was writing about issues that teenagers and and college students struggle with and really give that community something that they could make their own. And that was such a wonderful part of that process at that time. So I think that that's part of selecting this play is choosing to do it at a time when it will be healthy for everyone involved. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point to make and kind of leads perfectly into the last question that I always ask everyone, which is why do you think people should continue to read or watch or choose to produce this play? I think that Sarah Kane is brilliant very dark very very dark but her work to me is it's very confrontational yeah and I think that we are maybe in a moment where we're moving away from that theatrically or at least like some of us are but I think that it's so important to theater to like the history of women in theater, like recent history, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. this play is now 20 years old. Um, <laughs> but also like I found it and was like, I want to be friends with her. Yeah. Um, and so I think that this play is one of those plays that does help people th- through those dark times in their lives don't necessarily read it while you're in that dark time. Yeah. But definitely check it out as as a ray of hope as, in that moment where you're like, I want to feel seen. I want to know that other people have had these experiences and that I'm not the only person who is in this dark place. Yeah. Um, and that to me has been so valuable and it was I think I hope valuable to my actors my cast and my crew and it it seemed to be a very valuable thing to the audience who saw it yeah and that's that's why it was valuable to me when I read it I you know I I hadn't been in that place for a while but I remembered being there and you you just it's good I think to remember that you're not alone when you're having that sort of feeling whether you have depression or another mental illness that causes that or you're just going through a rough time people people have felt this way before people will feel this way again but it'll it will end like all things do and like this podcast has to (laughs) yes So with that, uh, I think I will close out our conversation here. It's been so amazing having you here. Um, 
everything you had to say was just really, really great. Now I'm fangirling a little. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. I think the listeners will too. And if they want to find out more about you and your work, because uh, I'm sure they do now, uh, where should they go and do that? Well, I am on the new play exchange if you want to see my writing um, under Monica Cross. Uh, my website is www.monicacross.com um, and it will actually just more or less point you back towards the new play exchange <laughs> uh, because I cannot say enough good things about that resource. Neither can I, honestly. I'm also on Twitter. Yeah, oh, I believe it's linked in your new play exchange here. Twitter handle is. It is at the Roaring Girl. Gotcha. No spaces, no underscores, no dashes, just the Roaring Girl. Awesome. All right. Well, do you have any? Do you have anything else? I know you have some productions coming up. Do you want to mention those? Yes. Um, I have two short plays that are going to be available online during the weekend immediately after this comes out. Um, Mm -hmm. One is On Robots and Raindrops, which is being performed as a radio drama for, uh, or at uh, Theater Odyssey. And the other is The Beginning of Everything, which is going to be at the Actors Conservatory. And that's uh, on their, they've got like two evenings of one acts, and it's on evening one, which will be on the 22nd all right so the day after this drops so guys if you want to see some of monica's stuff perfect timing so go for it (laughs) all right well thank you once again for being here monica it was super awesome to see you and hear you again and thank all of you out there for listening and continuing to listen to the podcast if you want to contact me you know where to find me. Email is theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com or Instagram at, at playmatespodcast. There's a little link tree in the Instagram bio where you can see our website, as well as my own personal website, as well as links to how you can support the podcast if you would like to. And now, as of when I'm recording this, there is an official Google form where you can submit your guest and or play suggestions for me to go over and maybe I'll choose some of them. That would be fun. I'll credit you if I do, I promise. (laughs) That's also in the link tree. It's also on the Playmates Podcast website. So feel free to check those out as well. And finally, before you go, if you could please take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really does mean a lot to me. It makes like my whole month when I see another one. And it also helps others to discover the podcast. And oh gosh, I'm also on TikTok now if you guys want to see me say weird crap about theater which you may or may not want to (laughs) because you already listened to this. All right. Well, that's all for this episode. I can't wait to see you all in the next episode in which I will be discussing Rain Follows the Plow by Rachel Nelson. Thanks again for listening, guys. Have a safe and fulfilling week. Bye for now. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.